0: Is anybody listening? Can anybody hear the crazy things they say? Is anybody listening? Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on this is part two of our interview with Dr. Michael Severese from FGCU's Water School, where he is a professor of coastal resilience and climate adaptation. In part two of our interview, we look at questions voters should ask of their elected leaders, what people can do to address climate change, and we dispel some of the common myths around climate change and a lot more, so it's a really great interview. I do want to remind people that we have Biden signs. I know that you're sick of the MAGA flags and Trump signs, so you can get your Biden sign and show your support. We have volunteers who are delivering signs to your house for a donation of $10. Go to our website, request a sign today. Be sure to check out our candidate spotlights. These events allow you a chance to hear from the Democratic candidates directly. Our next event is on Tuesday, July 14th at 530 You can sign up for this event on our website or on our Facebook page. Each subsequent week, we'll focus on another candidate, so check on the website for those dates and sign up for those as well. We will have audio and video of each spotlight available on the podcast and on our website. All of this information can be found at our website, www.callyardems.org. That's www.callyardems.org. So now, here is part two of our interview with FGCU's Professor of Coastal Resilience and Climate Adaptation, Dr. Michael Severis. So what are the main, um, we've been talking about climate change, what are the main contributors to climate change? What are the main ingredients that are causing the climate to warm?
1: Well, it's fundamentally you know, what's in the atmosphere. It's those greenhouse gases. Um, it's those gases that are controlling the atmosphere's capacity to hold the energy. And the um, problematic greenhouse gases, the ones that are there in greater concentrations than nature had intended are uh, methane and most importantly, carbon dioxide. And you know we're doing a lot at um, putting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere. Methane has a short residence time in the atmosphere. So methane is much better at trapping heat than carbon dioxide is but it doesn't have as long a life in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide does. So it's really all about, it's all about what we're putting into the atmosphere and um, all starts with the greenhouse gases. And, you know, you hear people talk about, Oh, you know, we've gone through history long before humans existed or long before humans were driving cars where the planet was warmer or colder. We had ice ages. There's plenty of times in earth history where sea level was, you know, so high that peninsula Florida was completely underwater. But given the, the natural processes associated with the sun, the Earth, and the moon, we're not supposed to be there yet. We're not supposed to be as hot as we are. We're still essentially in kind of a glacial kind of a phase in Earth history, and we're much, much
0: warmer than we're supposed to be. I want to expand on that a little. How do scientists prove that? I, and that's—I know—that's got to be a tough question to try to answer on a on a podcast yeah. <laughs> where you can't have a graph and, and and point point to a to a set of data or something because that's the thing that we you know, those those who don't believe in climate change and think that it's somehow uh, that the earth is always warmed and cooled, like you said, and that this is uh, all made up. It's hard to kind of argue with them to say, "Well, no," they can scientists can back out, you know, what should have happened with the earth versus what we are adding yeah. to it. How can you give any type of explanation on how that, how scientists are sure. able to extract that? Yeah, you those know, I'm, two I'm, things?
1: I'm sitting here smiling because sometimes I think the graphs are really helpful. And I think the graphs just sometimes confuse people, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, it, first of all, we have a really good understanding of what temperature was like and what the concentration of carbon dioxide was like in our atmosphere for almost the last million years. It's the record goes back well for at least 800,000 years, okay? And 800,000 years takes us in and out of natural glacial and interglacial cycles. Okay? So we can track carbon dioxide and temperature over, you know, that that almost 1 million year of history and when you look at those graphs side by side, when, um, when carbon dioxide concentrations go up, temperature goes up. When carbon dioxide concentrations go down, uh, um, temperature goes down. And they move like a pair of figure skaters. They're in perfect concert with one another. When you look at other times in Earth history when it's been warm, okay, the carbon dioxide levels and the temperature sit high on those graphs, Okay, and then if you look at a number of those interglacial cycles when it's when it's warm on Earth, they all sit at the same height. They never get higher than that particular height. And then if you look at the modern world, the last um, 150 years of human history at the tail end of this 800,000 year record, the pair of figure skaters are, are are zooming up uh, uh, into the atmosphere. The curves go up, 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 up well beyond the levels of carbon dioxide and temperature the planet has ever experienced over the, late, the last 800,000 years of history. And if you could see it visually, it's as if, you know, temperature was going up and down, up a step, down a step, up a step, down a step, until you get to the Industrial Revolution and then temperature and carbon dioxide don't go up a step, they go up a ladder. You know, they go up an appreciable height on that graph. And there's good physics behind uh, understanding the cause and effect relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature. There's a reason why the two go hand in hand. Now, the next question that people ask is, well, how do we know the carbon dioxide isn't natural? You know, volcanoes produce carbon dioxide. It's true, carbon dioxide has fluctuated greatly. If you go back to um, a period of time called the Eocene, which is about 30 million years ago, the Earth's carbon dioxide levels were even higher than they are now and it was a horrible hothouse world um, and there was no fossil fuel burning. Uh, It was all natural carbon dioxide. But carbon dioxide has or can be geochemically fingerprinted. The carbon dioxide that comes from the burning of fossil fuels, so carbon dioxide that comes from wood, comes from oil, comes from gas, has a particular isotopic geochemistry the carbon dioxide does, than carbon dioxide that's coming from other sources that don't originate from the burning of organic materials. So when you look at the isotopic chemistry of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, it demonstrates quite impressively that the carbon dioxide is principally coming from organic materials, plant materials that have been oxidized or burned. And uh, it's coming out of the tailpipes of cars. It's coming out of the exhaust uh, from jet planes. It's coming out of coal burning and natural gas burning plants, energy generating plants. And it, it's irrefutable. There's, there's, no, there's no denying it. So so carbon dioxide and temperature mimic each other through history. The values are through the roof now since, since uh, you know, the late 1800s and are going up at a crazy rate. We're now well over, uh, 400 parts per million. And the target was supposed to be keep us below 350. We surpassed that years ago. It's still going up, even with the COVID situation when people aren't driving and flying as much, still going up. And, uh, and we know that the carbon dioxide is from, is coming from, from oil, gas and plant material, coal.
0: So it sounds like most of these, uh changes that we're seeing are global forces, basically, that um, in order to address the climate change, the carbon dioxide levels, this is a global decision that will have to be made by all of the countries around the world to significantly reduce their carbon footprint and move to more renewable, less carbon-based economies. Is that fair to say that you couldn't, a local community cannot, they can do the right things, but it will not affect their the the way the environment acts if everyone else Yeah, you know it's suit. the
1: it's the tragedy of the commons on a global scale, right? Because um the commons isn't just yeah. you know your neighborhood, it's the entire stinking planet that has to that has to behave unselfishly to to make a difference.
0: And I'm glad you brought that up. Let's let's talk about the tragedy of the commons because that's a that's a term that uh, I'm familiar with, but I don't think most of our, our listeners are going to be familiar with that concept, the tragedy of the commons. Can you explain what the tragedy of the commons is? Yeah, I'm not listeners?
1: sure where the concept originated. I think when I first learned about it in school, way back when, I think it was um, a bunch of um, uh, shepherds who were sharing pasture, you know, for their sheep and uh, the the shepherds, uh, I guess the way the story goes, the shepherds were supposed to cooperate and move their sheep around and not exploit too much of the resources, so all the shepherds and all the sheep could benefit. Um, but only one shepherd and one flock is on the landscape at, at any given time, and that shepherd and his or her sheep can take advantage of of the of the luscious pasture grasses um, and increase that shepherd's worth, uh, the flock's worth. And uh, that person benefits then at the expense of all the other people that are relying on the resources that are there in the commons. And that's really the, the juxta of, of natural resource management and conservation of natural resources. It's at, it's at, the, it's at the, uh, the crux of every problem, environmental and developmental societal problem we've had to deal with is how do you use uh, resources in a sustainable way that doesn't have ill effects on other people that are dependent on the commons. I do, I do work in the Bahamas. Um, the Bahamas is a, an entire country. That's just a few feet above sea level and they don't have the luxury of packing up and moving inland to higher ground. They like a lot of these, uh, Indo-Pacific Island nations are going to have to pack up and leave and they can, um, they can observe, good green practices and uh you know convert to renewable energy sources and and do all the right thing but what impact is the bahamas going to have on the global carbon budget it's it's inconsequential so there you know the 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 selfishness of other commons users are basically bullying these smaller nations so it's a tough problem you know when you can't get communities within a small region to cooperate? How do you get sovereign nations around the entire planet to cooperate?
0: Yeah. Speaking of leaders, this is an election year. Do you have, what kind of questions, relevant questions, do you think are good to ask of local leaders? I mean, specifically, obviously, you wouldn't ask the president of the United States what he's going to do to help Southwest Florida with their uh, nuisance flooding. What kind of things can... Can listeners ask of their elected leaders?
1: The COVID situation is an existential problem that's immediate, right? But climate change is is a, a slow-burning existential problem that needs to be paid attention to while all of this other stuff is going on that requires more immediate action. So I don't think it's unreasonable. I, I think it's very reasonable for, for voters to um, insist that... Uh, their government, the people they're voting for or supporting, are aware, have a good awareness of climate change, um, believe in the science, you know, basically are adherents to the science behind climate change and aren't climate change deniers, which fortunately is becoming rarer and rarer. And so not only do they have, not only are they climate change literate, but they're also thinking about policies that can help both with the adaptation piece and the mitigation piece reducing the amount of CO2. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask our city council nominees, the people that are running for office or our county commissioners, as well as our you know, district representatives at the national level or in the state uh, uh, legislature, to be thinking about both what can happen locally to to deal with the problems that are going to come our way, and how can they, even though they're just a small community in the grand commons of, that is the planet. you know what are their thoughts about having their own local communities address their carbon footprint because I do believe that that kind of attitude that culture is is contagious, and you know if lots of cities and states were uh were proactive about reducing their carbon footprints. I would say during normal political times, I think that the country would be, would be behind it as well. And we would have a different posture internationally when it comes to cooperating across the planet.
0: All right. So last bit, I want to go into uh, a little bit of myth busting and you can answer these quickly just because these are the yeah. most common things that I run into with people who, who question the science or question uh, climate change. What is the difference between weather and climate the best phrase to use is,
1: weather is what you get. Climate is what you expect. OK, so climate is really sort of a, uh, an integration of uh, weather patterns over time so that you know more than likely uh, in the summertime we're going to have tropical storms and it's going to be hot and humid. And in the winter here in Collier County, we might have a frost every once in a great while. Um, so uh, weather is what you have uh, in, in, the, in the present. And climate is what you're likely to get as you move into the future.
0: And then we kind of already discussed why climate scientists know humans have caused the rise in temperature. How accurate are climate models?
1: <clears throat> Modeling always, always seems to take it on the chin because, uh, you know, models are prognosticators, right? They're, they're basically tools to predict the future. And no one, uh, no matter how well informed uh, you might be, even if the you is a computer model, you know, there, there are, probabilities of being right and probabilities of being wrong models get better as science gets better um, as the models get more complicated and they do a better job of explaining nature. If you look at the models that have been generated uh, climate models that have been generated beginning in the 1990s, all the way up to the present, that IPCC that I mentioned puts out an annual report every few years. There are now five annual reports over that interval of history. And over time, those models, have gotten better and better. They've done a better job of uh, of predicting climate change over short intervals of time. And as those models have gotten better, more scientists have realized that these potential effects of climate change are, are real. So as the models have gotten better, more and more uh, scientists have come on board to develop a consensus around climate change. The other thing about models is the way you test models or you validate them is you you use them in what's called postdiction mode. So I've got a computer model um, that I'm using to predict the future. Well, how well does it hindcast the past? In other words, um, can you run your model and try to simulate what Irma did? Can you simulate what sea surface temperatures did um, five years ago? Uh, Can you simulate the patterns of atmospheric temperature over Eurasia um, over the last previous five years. So that's the way you gain greater um, respectability
0: of the models. So how much consensus is there among scientists? Okay, so you know,
1: if you, uh, I don't know how many national academies of sciences there are in the world, but every one of those national academies of science has a statement that says climate change is occurring and humans are at least partly responsible. And then there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, professional scientific societies that deal with geology, ecology, meteorology, climatology, oceanography, every one of them and their memberships have consensus statements saying climate change uh, is occurring and humans are at least partly responsible. You know, there are times when Scientists disagree with aspects of climate change. We certainly don't understand everything. Uh, we don't understand the science of everything. I mentioned, um, you know, the 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 future of the of the glacial ice on Antarctica and Greenland. You know, there's a lot of debate and uh, and back and forth, you know, for different aspects. But in terms of the grand picture, there is consensus. And when you see organizations, if I can use this phrase, cherry picking some statement of, of of an authority that claims climate change isn't occurring. Well, in inevitably, they're choosing uh, an authority that has experience in some other field, um, and they, they're not a climate scientist, they're not a geologist, they're not an oceanographer, they're not qualified. They may have a PhD, and they may have lots of experience doing research in a particular field, but that doesn't make them... That doesn't make them qualified. I have this. Uh, I have this phrase that I sometimes use when I'm giving presentations about this. I want to make sure I get it right. What do you feel more comfortable with, a plumber that tells you your health is perfectly fine, or an oncologist that tells you you have cancer? You know, you you have to go to the right authority when you're when you're asking those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, and I and I think also the media doesn't do a, a service to it because you. You have so many people that agree, but on the media, they'll say, well, we're going to bring up somebody who believes climate change is happening and somebody who says climate change isn't happening. And to the public, when they look at it, it looks like a 50 50 choice of this person says it's happening. This person says it isn't happening. In reality, they should bring ninety (laughs) nine scientists who say that it's actually happening and let that one person argue. Right.
1: You know, you'll have a scientist debating one side and and someone debating the other and you've got a skilled debater versus someone that has doesn't have those debating skills and you know that just throws throws a
0: yeah you bring you bring someone who's comfortable in debating and can win an argument rhetorically but is missing all the facts and is not actually exactly. saying, stating something that's scientifically accurate then you kind of undercut the entire point of the of the debate in the first place if you're trying to educate the population who's listening that's our show. I want to thank Dr. Severese for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 112 days left until Election Day. Make them all count. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.